What role do colleges and universities play in building an anti-racist future? This podcast series, Building the Anti-Racist College and University, seeks to begin examining this question. Through interviews with administrators, faculty, researchers, policy experts, historians, and students, each episode in this series examines one important piece of beginning to conceptualize anti-racist colleges and universities of the present and future. This series was produced as part of a term project during fall 2020 for Higher Education Leadership 7372, Diversity and Culture in Higher Education at Sam Houston State University in Huntsville, Texas, United States. The foundation for this project was Ibram Kendi's 2019 text, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Each student in the course designed one episode seeking to unpack, question, problematize, or dissect a particular area related to building anti-racist colleges and universities. The series in no way is exhaustive, prescriptive, or capable of answering every question. But collectively, the series adds to an ongoing conversation in higher education about anti-racist futures. We hope it inspires dialogue, reflection, engagement, and action on colleges and universities in the United States and around the world. We hope it inspires ongoing work, research, activism, policy, local, regional, national, and international action. We hope it brings us one step closer to an anti-racist future in post-secondary education. This episode is The Agency of the Black Male Academic. Hello, my name is Jamila Clayton, and I'm a doctoral program student in the Higher Education Leadership Program at Sam Houston State University. The title of this podcast episode is called The Agency of the Black Male Academic. This episode is a part of the podcast series conducted by my fellow cohort members and I and our professor called Building the Anti-Racist College and University. For this podcast episode, I will be focusing on the experiences of Black male tenured faculty and senior administrators in higher education in relation to the intersections of race and gender. During the episode, we will discuss their experiences with gendered racism, tokenism, and cultural taxation while they navigated their careers in higher education, as well as discuss ways Universities can help improve the experiences of Black male faculty and senior administrators through dismantling racist policies, practices, and institutional cultures. This podcast will be the start of a larger study I would like to conduct examining the experiences of Black male and Black female tenured faculty and senior administrators at four-year public and private predominantly white institutions in the United States. Just a little background, Dr. Austin is a tenured professor of political science at Prairie View A&M University. He is also the interim associate dean of the College of Arts and Sciences and the director of the Mellon Center for Faculty Excellence at Prairie View A&M University. So, could you please tell me a little bit about yourself and what made you interested in a career in higher education? Um, as you alluded to, my name is William Austin. 
Um, I'm from New Orleans, Louisiana. Um, um, son of a person who was in the military for 23 years. So we moved around a lot growing up. Um, so, you know, the military kind of uh, shaped my life, uh, exposed me to a lot of different people, places, things, uh, ideologies, and how I go about my everyday. Um, we settled in New Orleans when I was 13. So that's where I call home. Uh, out of high school, I went to a couple different schools before I graduated from the University of New Orleans. Got my master's from Florida State University and my PhD from the University of New Orleans as well. So that is the beginning of the academic journey. Awesome. Thank you. And so uh, you did say you went to the University of New Orleans. Mm -hmm. And so can you please describe like how you were supported as a black male while pursuing your doctorate and also how ways you were not supported as a black male pursuing your doctorate? In graduate school, I experienced the gambit of everything, right? Oh, wow. From just perception of you got here because of affirmative action. Um, you did well on the exam, but did you really understand the material or did you memorize it? Um, then another situation I had was I wanted to write my dissertation on rap music. This was 1997, 98. I would have been light years ahead right now. I probably would have been one of the top hip hop scholars in the country at this point. But I had all these connections with No Limit Records, Cash Money Records. Oh. You know, some of my best friends was rappers. I really was going to do something that I believe was cutting edge at that time. So that idea was not completely out of the sky because nobody really wanted to work with me because I was doing that. We only had one black professor in that department, but really it was just majority white male. So nobody really wanted to help me move that project forward. Right. Um, so that was a main issue I had. Um, and then and stop me if you if you want to interject. And the last one I really had was my PhD comprehensive exams. I taught criminology and criminal justice for a couple semesters. The part I failed on the comprehensive exams was criminology. So the classes that I'm teaching, I failed. And I only failed it by a slight margin two times. The one that I passed was the criminal justice part social justice part and i pass the, the the theory the statistics and the research methods part i blew that out the water right so the reason i failed the criminology theory part was because the same professor who was the professor in that class which gave me the b minus was on the grading committee and they would never remove him from the committee mm -hmm. so the first time, let's just say I had two people pass me out of five. Those two people gave me high marks. Three people gave me low marks. So there was no in-between. The second time I failed it, clear fail, right? All five people gave me low marks. So I had some issues. I really had to do some brainstorming. And then I quit the program at Florida State and I went into corporate America for a little while. That deterred me a lot. And then I started back at the University of New Orleans. What motivated you to go back after being like, that's a huge discouragement? You know, it was just in me. You know, if it's in you to teach 
and to educate, you're going to find that focus at some point. And that's really what it was. Awesome. And so at Florida State University, like what ways do you think the policies could have changed since, you know, it was just, it was a culture, it was, you know, racism mm -hmm. embedded. So the, the culture was in place, but when it's all said and done, it's just, it, it wasn't enough black professors on campus to really help you. Right. Mm -hmm. One. And then two, a lot of the pushback I got in my program were from four professors. They were basically untouchable. So, you know, there is such a, a, a power structure there that even if you win one battle, ultimately you'll lose the war, right? So in order to change like pretty much any racist policies and cultures and institutions is to allow more diverse or black and brown faculty to come through, but there is that barrier to get oh, them. Definitely. If, if you really want to change the culture, you know, these PWIs preach um, diversity and inclusion all the time. And really what they're talking about is hiring more white women, right? <laughs> um, yeah. They're not really hiring minorities. And if they are, they're hiring them at the assistant professor level and they're not really mentoring them through the ranks, right? If you really want to change the culture, you need to one hire in cohorts and you need to mentor them to tenure or you need to hire them as an associate professor so they can have some type of say in the power structure. Mm -hmm. I mean, we all know that um, if you hire someone as an assistant, there's only so much power that they have. If they're outspoken, then there's a chance that they may not get tenure or there's going to be some issues within that department. So we know that to be true. Um, so you got to hire more tenured professors. You just have to. Well, that's one of the main questions that we had as far as like building anti-racist universities. And I do agree, like if it's going to continue to be always like white male dominated, it's going to really mm -hmm. be hard. They're going to keep hiring themselves basically. So right, because it's vastly different than, um, a Prairie View A&M university where assistant professors feel like they have the liberty to say certain things or have certain input. You know, it's an unwritten rule a lot of times with these predominantly white schools that if you're an assistant professor, you don't say anything in the meetings unless you're asked to. Mm. When you give input, you give input in certain ways, right? So all of those things are commonplace. Um, hopefully things change with the climate. Um, hopefully more minorities get voices in these institutions so you mentioned so the tenure process was where you kind of experienced more of the barriers and where it's really difficult so did you that tenure process you know the literature speaks for itself there's oodles of uh, articles out there that tell you you know the tenure process for um a person of color could be it could be daunting right um for example, where did you publish? What's the quality of your publications? How many do you have? Are you publishing in minority journals? What does that mean? If it's the Journal of Black Studies, if it's, you know, are you, are you publishing in predominantly white journals? Well, I'm speaking about issues of race. So when I try to publish in these journals, what type of reviewers are they sending them out to? These right. people don't really understand race relations. For example, you know, after Katrina, I wrote a lot of race stuff about uh, Hurricane Katrina. And I would get all kind of comments like, why didn't he just leave? Da-da-da-da-da. New Orleans should close down. 
nothing really about my articles, but these were white males and white females who clearly was reading these articles. They didn't really have a scope of what was going on, but they had wrote some things on disaster preparedness and awareness, but they didn't have a race um, component to it, right? So all of those things kind of apply to what's going on. You know, how are you doing in the classroom? You know, even to this day, I'm probably one of the highest rated teaching professors at the last institution I was at. So that was an issue because white students like me more than they like the white professors. Um, I was teacher of the year in 2013. I won a, a Manny Stevens Piper Award, right? Uh, rate my professor rated me the 19th best professor in America. That was the issue. Uh, the National Society of Honor Society gave me a teaching award. That was an issue. I was a finalist for the university teaching award. That was an issue, right? So in the area of teaching, well, why are you getting such high teaching evaluations? You must be giving out A's. No, because I'm trying to make class interesting mm -hmm. and I'm trying to teach them something beyond the textbook, right? Um, where are you publishing at? It must be in this type of journal as I just alluded to, right? What kind of service are you doing? Um, students always come to your events. Yeah, because I make them entertaining for students on campus. So there's always some edge of criticism. Um, so what are some of like the like most valued experiences you've had being just a professor and being in higher education? Man, there's no greater feeling than, you know, teaching students and watching that light bulb come on uh, when you know you've made an impact on their life and they come back and thank you or they look toward you for graduate school, law school and things of that nature. So that's probably the, the greatest part of it all. And, you know, one thing I can hang my hat on is that, you know, I've had students from all types of schools like my class, you know, which is really a testament to one, me walking into a classroom wanting to educate irregardless of your, your circumstance, your background, your skin color, your gender, your sex, your gender identity, any of those things, right? So that's one thing I just take pride in. That's great. Well, thank you for saying that. I really appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> <And> <laughs> well, my last question is just, is there any other ways that you think we can help build more anti-racist universities? I know sometimes it feels like it's impossible, <laughs> but like, is there yeah. any ideas that you think that we can do so that way it's just more inclusive? Right. I, I think what we talked about earlier, and I've been, you know, putting some best practices together to really uh, help faculty development, but more so to build universities where we're treated equal. I think universities have to make a conscious effort, particularly PWIs, to hire people at all ranks, right? So not only should we hire in cohorts, but we should hire in tiers too. So for a university who's historically had issues in particular departments, it would be best to hire three assistants, two associates, one full. Well, why do you say it like that? Because one, I want an equal number of faculty hired in a cohort. Mm -hmm. Because I've seen some models where they've hired six assistants. You still hire six assistants, 
who are being governed by all of these white males who are fools, right? So I need someone at every tier of the power structure. Another thing is we need to hire more of these minority professors in the chair role to begin with. That way they can come in and shift the climate and we have to support them. So we have to hire those people in chair positions, department head positions, dean's positions, and support them to shift the culture. Because all at the end of the day, all of this is about culture shifting, right? Mm-hmm. And then the last thing we really have to do, and, and this is the, the, you know, the, the writing on the walls, that we just need to start grooming more black presidents. Dr. Jefferson, he is the Director of Academic Support Services and the University Tutoring Center at Prairie View A&M University, and he is also an adjunct faculty member. He's had a lot of experience in higher education, both at um, predominantly white institutions as well as HBCUs. And so the first question is, please tell me a little bit about yourself and what made you interested in a career in higher education? Well, I would like to say that I was one of those people who grew up and knew exactly what I wanted to be and went on this journey to become that, um, you know, and pursue this career field, but that's not what happened. I'm a first-generation college student, um, come from very, um, you know, people call it modest background now, but when I was growing up, they called it poor. So we were very poor, we were from Acres Home in North, uh, North Houston. Um, and so I went to school to, and I was a pre-med major. And I was a pre-med major only because Heathcliff Hustable was a doctor and Claire yep. Hustable was a uh, lawyer. So I just said, okay, man, I'm going to be a doctor. So that's not what you And literally, that's why I was a pre-med major. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was in school, I had no... Um, uh, it was no way, no guidance counselor that say, you know, take this kind of, you know, career test. or you thought about this, you thought about that. It was just, okay, go to your next class and, you know, I'll sign the recommendation for you to do this. So I ended up at, uh, through some hoops and hurdles, I ended up at Xavier University, New Orleans as a pre-med major. So when I came back home and I kind of came back to where I left from, like, I know more, there's more to life out there. So I ended up in, uh, Moving to California, I had a friend out there, and he says, "Man, just come, you know, hang out with me for a while." So I went out there, I got a job at Circuit City, um, selling TVs, and then I said, "Well, I got a college degree, and uh, I need to do more than just sell TVs." So I ended up, uh, someone told me, "Just go get a substitute teaching job till you figure out what you want to do." Mm-hmm. So I ended up going to Compton uh, Unified School District. Um, Funny and got an emergency credential to teach. I went in on a Monday and got an application. I turned it in on a Tuesday. They called me Wednesday to come in on Thursday for an interview. And they called me Friday morning and said to come in and do your fingerprints because they wanted me to start the next Monday. Um, it, they needed teachers and they specific, specifically they needed science teachers. So I got a job within a week and I was in the classroom and I fell in love with education. Um, really got attached to like a lot of the people in the community and stuff like that. So uh, about two years later, there's an opportunity at Pasadena City College, a community college there 
that was a, it was an upward bound program and it oh, cool. was a grant funded program because I was working in a grant funded uh, community based organization through the department. <laughs> and then it was a math science upward bound program. So it was work with the local community and kids local community to get them into college and majors in math, science and STEM and th different things like that. So I took that opportunity like, wow, this is the best of both worlds. This is what I really, you know, this is kind of fits everything I've been doing. So I ended up taking that job. Uh, and that's what introduced me to higher education. And that was a whole world that opened up to me. And I st stayed there and I was like, wow, this is a lot of opportunity. It's really mm -hmm. what I want to do. I started getting immersed in that uh, culture and decided like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Awesome. And what are some of your most valued experiences being in senior level leadership? Most valued experiences? Um, That is a good question because that's a lot. Um, number one, the opportunity to develop relationships across campus. Being in certain positions, you know, it, it's it's like a pyramid. Everything kind of goes up towards the top of the pyramid, and so you can touch a lot of different areas under you, and you develop relationships with the people in those areas, and. As a senior level leader, you get to make decisions that can help those people grow and develop. So if you, because sometimes people don't see their own talent, and I, I take that lesson because people reached out and you know tapped me on the shoulder when I wasn't paying attention to what I could do. Mm -hmm. So you see things in people, you have the opportunity to say, "Hey, you have a talent. You should develop this. I'm going to give you opportunity to develop it." Or, man, you're really, really bright. You should go to school. You should go back to school and do this. Uh, let me work your schedule. They give you time to, you know, get to school. Or, I think you're in the wrong position. Your skills are here versus here. Let me get you over here. And you develop those relationships. And you see people grow and develop. And uh, develop intellectually, develop professionally be able to get in positions where they can take better care of their families because they increase their salaries and stuff like that. And so that's, that's one of the, you know, high points of being a senior leadership. Um, I did a lot of work in equity. Um, uh, I did some, some major programs in equity uh, that were recognized across the state and across the country, matter of fact, um, <clears throat> that I've, felt very proud of. And I, I was able to do that because I was in positions where I can kind of really affect some change. And that translates directly to students. I mean, some things that I was a part of creating and spearheading to really affect equity for students and getting students better opportunities to grow and learn and complete their educations. And for many of the students I served were first generation college students and come from low income backgrounds. Them getting a college degree, getting that associate degree, transferring on and get their bachelor's degree, that changed the, the trajectory of their families forever. Mm -hmm. Going from you know work being in South Central Los Angeles, poor, first generation to getting a bachelor's degree, that's going to change their families forever. And so being able to be a part of that um, was you know really really high point. I mean. And like, that's a great segue and like, you're really passionate and you brought up policy changes and getting into those positions. So like based on race, like 
what challenges, if any, did you face as you were trying to navigate your career into senior level leadership? Well, being a black man, that, there's, it's a double-edged sword. And I learned this early. One of my mentors kind of pointed this out to me. Because, you know, if you look at higher education across the country and all these systems, it's not a lot of us in position. It's not a, a lot of us in positions. You can point out people here, people there, but especially if you're at a predominantly white institution, you may not, there may not be any black male administrators, or it may be one, or it may be one over here. And many times that one is probably in um, student affairs or student services. Right. And if you look across, that's, that's where we end up. That's why the diversity in higher ed administration is. It's over in student affairs. Yeah. The academic affairs is the pathway to college presidencies. Exactly. And so if you look, and that's where, you know, that glass ceiling for us lies many times as African-American men is, you know, trying to get into the academic side and trying to be, uh, 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 you know, our campus culture just wasn't ready for you, you know. Right. Um, we're very homogenous campus and that probably was it. I had people come tell me straight out. Yeah, at our campus, we just, oh, people say, we're just really traditional, homogenous and traditional. Oh my gosh, wow. And so, I mean, that stuff, that stuff to happen today, especially when you're, because I was able to go from student affairs to academic affairs. And, you know, academic affairs is, you know, that's the purview of, you know, that's the realm of faculty and, like I said, the role to the president, and it becomes very traditional. Mm -hmm. And what we're looking for. Yeah. And so do you think it's more like you have to deal with that more as far as your race or do you think being your gender as well plays a part in some of those decisions? I think it, it's both. I think it's a common and I, also your age factors in there, too. Because mm. <clears throat> many times it's. Many times, you know, it, it's place to be more comfortable with a black woman than a black man. Because, you know, I, I, it's, it's not as threatening. Mm -hmm. And so even if they try to still say, like, the other lady was like, well, I felt intimidated by your presence of being a Black man, but it's just like, I'm just being in authoritative in my position. I didn't come at you any different than yeah. someone else who would, who, if it was a white male as your director, I didn't say yeah. anything different. So, but you just kind of have to work through that. You just gotta make because that's gonna happen. Now, mind you, my president I work for is about six five, so he was a big guy too. So <clears throat> you're intimidated by me, and I was sitting down. Right. But you go to this other office, the guy six five, you know, what big guy, but you're not intimidated by him. Mm -hmm. What's the difference between me and him? Exactly. So I mean, but that's gonna happen, and I mean that is what it is, and you gotta be careful with stuff like that. Uh, but that's part of the, that's part of the game. And this senior administration stuff is a full contact sport. Wow. And that's a really great segue too, because we're trying to like discuss how to build an anti-racist university by changing, you know, racist policies, practices, and institutional cultures. So like, do you have any suggestions on how to do that? Cause you know, you're in a senior leadership position, like you said, and you're able to make changes. But, you know, as a black male, like, you know, you're going to get some pushback because it's just, you know, not homogenous. And it's, you know, they're like, wait, I'm threatened by that because we're used to how it's always been. Well, so the challenge with that is 
people don't willingly give up power. So if you look at the senior administration at most institutions of higher education across America, I mean, HBCUs are a little different, but look at the majority of higher education students across America, look at the senior leadership and who makes up the senior leadership. Right. Who sits on the, look at who sits on the board of trustees at most institutions. Yeah. It's not us. And so what you'd be saying is, we need some of you all to give up your power and give mm. power to somebody else. Somebody else that you already don't think is capable, somebody that you don't think is worthy, somebody that you don't think is smart enough, naturally smart enough, or has worked hard enough, or whatever these barriers that your personal biases come with. You want me to give them my power to give them? Right. Yeah. Why am I giving them a handout? So I think that's the challenge because you're gonna ask, have some senior leaders to kind of give that up. And they people want people say, oh yeah, we need to have a better, you know, way to do this as long as it doesn't affect me. <laughs> that's exactly so, it. So that is the that is the crust of it. Number two, and you know, you're in a leadership program, we talk a lot a bit about leadership, we need to understand how higher education works. So goes your faculty, so goes your university. If you don't diversify the faculty mm -hmm. ranks, it doesn't matter what you do with the, uh, at, the, uh, uh, at the senior leadership level. That's just a fact. If you can get a very diverse uh, uh, leadership set, but if you have a very homogenous faculty, it doesn't matter. Right. You know, the staff, we talk about the administration, directors, whatever. We leave the, don't don't bring up the faculty because mm -hmm. we don't want the headache. But if you look at the faculty across the nation, the faculty is majority white, and mm -hmm. the faculty carry the power on campus. Yeah, the president is you know important figure. The provost is important figure. But you know what? Provosts come and go. Presidents come and go. You have a, a faculty member there for twenty years, thirty years. They are there regardless. They see presidents come and go. They see provosts come and go. They see vice presidents come and go. But they're there. If you want to diversify your, your, your campus and have an anti-racist campus, you have to get into the faculty. Who are they hiring in their departments? Who is teaching? Right. What are they teaching? How are they teaching? <laughs> so much during my interviews with Dr. Hostin and Dr. Jefferson. It is important that the voices and experiences of Black male higher education leaders are documented in higher education literature to help universities understand their role in improving the experiences of Black faculty and senior administrators by creating anti-racist policies, practices, and institutional cultures. I want to thank Dr. Hostin and Dr. Jefferson for participating in this podcast episode and sharing their experiences as Black men in academia. My name is Jamila Clayton. Thank you for listening and have a blessed day. This podcast series was produced by Paul Eaton, Assistant Professor of Educational Leadership at Sam Houston State University. 
in conjunction with doctoral scholars enrolled in Higher Education Leadership 7372, Diversity and Culture in Higher Education, during fall 2020. You can contact Paul Eaton via email at pwe003 at shsu.edu. Content and perspectives presented in this series are intended for educational use. You can download a copy of episode transcripts and show notes at http colon backslash backslash bit.ly backslash anti-racist college. The views and opinions expressed on this program and series are those of the persons appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Sam Houston State University. Thank you for listening. This has been an episode of Building the Anti-Racist College and University.